The Apostle Paul quotes these words at the end of Romans 12. It's worth our while to revisit how he uses this citation. He says, and I'm citing Romans 12, 17 to 21 here, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Close quote. So the idea here is that as Christians, we ought to try and win over our enemies through acts of mercy and kindness. The burning coals represent pangs of conscience. When we do good to them, they will feel guilty for how they have treated us. And by means of these pangs, they may be brought to God. But even if they are not so affected, you will be blessed by the Lord. So you win either way. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we move into the second collection of Solomon's sayings in the book of Proverbs, we begin to notice a focus on government and society. It is the responsibility of leaders to rule wisely, and it is the responsibility of God's people to know how to read the room, discern the signs, and conduct themselves accordingly. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 25. In chapter 25, we enter into collection 5, which runs from chapter 25, verse 1, through to chapter 29, verse 27. As verse 1 here tells us, These are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Now, let's just stop and make sure we're properly appreciating that. Solomon lived in the 10th century BC. King Hezekiah lived in the 8th century BC. So these men were not contemporaries, not by a long shot. What that means is that the original anthology that Solomon prepared for his royal son was expanded upon over time. As I mentioned in the introductory episode, this anthology eventually emerged as a sort of standard catechism for Jewish parents to use in the instruction of their children. The original version probably ended at the end of chapter 24, but then a couple of hundred years later, this subsequent collection of Solomonic Proverbs was added. Now, certainly we know that Solomon wrote an awful lot of Proverbs, more even than we have here in this expanded collection. 1 Kings 4.32 says, He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So obviously not all of those 3,000 Proverbs made it into this anthology, but some did, and clearly these did. The men of Hezekiah, whom we presume to be scholars in Hezekiah's administration, gathered up these additional sayings and added them to the original collection, presumably with the intention of commending this entire book as a source for catechetical instruction. Scholars differ as to whether they also added chapters 30 and 31 at this time or whether those chapters were added at some point later down the road. We'll talk about that when we come to those chapters. 
This collection, taking up five chapters, is sometimes called Solomon II, as in the second collection of Solomonic sayings. I'm not sure I love that designation because the 30 sayings of the wise is likely a Solomonic adaptation, and the further sayings of the wise was probably also collected and adapted by Solomon. So this is really Solomon IV or Solomon V, if you count the poems and speeches in the preamble. Regardless, it is usually referred to as Solomon II, whether it should be or not. Bruce Walkie says here, the style of Solomon II matches that of Solomon I, but its structure is more transparent. I'll let you gauge that for yourself. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. Let's just pause here briefly. Walke puts all of verses 2 to 27 together under the heading, The Court Hierarchy and the Conflict of the Righteous and the Wicked. Again, I'll let you decide whether that's a useful organizing theme or not. Certainly, verse 2 appears addressed to the king in his official capacity. A contrast is being set up here between the mystery of God and the transparency of the king. By nature of his majesty and transcendence, God is always going to be shrouded in mystery. But the job of the king is to make things clear to people. God is not ultimately accountable to his subjects, but at the end of the day, the king is. Ask Rehoboam how things went for him when he decided to close his ears to the concerns and complaints of his people. Kings have to think about those things, but God does not. Wisdom involves understanding these distinctions. Verse 3, As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Now here a bit of nuance is being added to the basic point that was made in verse 2. Alan P. Ross says here, While a king ought to make judicial matters clear to the people, citing verse 2, many things are not made known perhaps because of his superior wisdom, his caprice, or the necessity of maintaining confidentiality, closed quote. The king must make an effort at transparency, but even still, many of his decisions will not make sense to the common man. He knows things by nature of his position that he cannot share with everyone, and thus some measure of trust and a certain degree of mystery must be maintained. Verse 4. Take away the dross from the silver, and the smith has material for a vessel. Take away the wicked from the presence of the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Here again, we're being reminded that the king must restrain, and if possible, remove wicked people from his kingdom. Of course, human kings are going to do this imperfectly, if at all, but as we've talked about several times, Jesus, the ultimate king, will do this perfectly, justly, and entirely upon his coming. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father forever. Thanks be to God. Verse 6. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Well, this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Jesus said almost exactly the same thing in Luke 14, 
He said, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Close quote. Wisdom doesn't change as we move from Old Testament to New Testament. It remains true that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So just work hard and let praise and promotion come to you at the proper time and in the proper way. The text goes on to say, What your eyes have seen do not hastily bring into court. For what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. The wise sage here is commending caution and discretion when dealing with neighbors. He's saying, first of all, to be cautious and self-aware when it comes to making an accusation. Are you sure you saw what you think you saw? Appearances can be deceiving. I remember a while back, I was speaking to a newcomer at the front of the church after the service. While we were talking, my teenage daughter, who looks older than she is and who happens to be a different color than I am, came up and told me she was going out for lunch, and she gave me a kiss on the cheek and walked off. The newcomer, who had seen me sitting with my wife, was clearly confused. She looked faintly scandalized. She wondered what sort of church and what sort of pastor she'd gotten mixed up with. Seeing the confusion in her eyes and in her frozen face, I explained the situation, and we had a good laugh together. Sometimes things aren't what they look like. And so Solomon is saying here, be really sure that you have the whole picture and the full context before making a false or spurious accusation, lest you become a fool in the eyes of the world. We were all reminded of the wisdom of this council back in the spring of 2020 when a woman named Karen called the police on a black man in Central Park who turned out to be a well-known and completely innocent birdwatcher. The woman jumped to conclusions and made a spurious accusation, and the entire thing was caught on camera, and she became the object of online mockery. Don't be that person. Talk to the individual directly. Be discreet. Check your facts. Be aware that you may have made assumptions. Your eyes can deceive you. So exercise some discretion, lest your ill repute have no end. Verse 11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. This proverb highlights the role of timing and situational awareness when it comes to giving counsel. Only a fool says everything he is thinking in absolutely every situation. A wise individual says the right thing, in the right way, at the right time, to the right person. Verse 13. 
Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. The imagery here is of a cool breeze coming down from the snow-capped mountains to bring refreshment to the hard-working harvesters in the valley. Such is the effect of a faithful messenger. Now remember, the original audience for these sayings was the royal son. Even if this collection was added later, this entire section has to do with wisdom at court. So a royal audience is assumed here. In those days, before email and cell phones and text messages, a king had to surround himself with a virtual army of messengers. Trade and diplomacy required constant communication. So a sloppy messenger or a forgetful messenger or an unpleasant messenger could cost you money or even talk you into a war. But a good messenger who would say what you wanted him to say and who could answer in the spirit you wanted him to answer was an absolute godsend, like a snow-cooled breeze on a hot autumn day. Verse 14. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. The imagery here is a little more accessible. A farmer spends a great deal of time looking up at the sky. When he sees clouds and when he feels wind, he is understandably hopeful. Such things promise rain. But if the rain never comes, then of course he's disappointed. So too, when we encounter brash and boastful people who make great promises, but who consistently fail to deliver. Avoid such people, and certainly don't be such a person yourself. Verse 15, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. This reminds us of the parable of the persistent widow. Day after day, she went to the wicked judge and made her plea, And even though he was a wicked judge, because of her persistence, he eventually gave her what she wanted. And there's a useful leadership lesson in there for us. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue constantly licking will break a bone. Verse 16. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing. Moderation is an aspect of wisdom. Verse 17. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. There is such a thing as overstaying your welcome. We have an English proverb making a similar point. Good fences make good neighbors. A little bit of distance is helpful in maintaining harmonious relations. Verse 18. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. We've seen this before. In most societies, few things are hated more than the false witness. Just tell the truth, because the truth will out in the end. Verse 19. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a foot that slips. I think most of us naturally understand this imagery. If you have ever bit down on a sore tooth or placed a foot on an icy patch, then this proverb probably makes a great deal of sense to you. The wise sage is reminding the royal son to choose his companions and advisors carefully. Verse 20. 
Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, and like vinegar on soda. Again, the emphasis here is on timing and contextual awareness. Read the room, sense the mood. Awkward attempts to cheer people up only make things worse. You have to be able to assess the situation to provide useful leadership. Verses 21 and 22 will be very familiar to New Testament readers. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The Apostle Paul quotes these words at the end of Romans 12. It's worth our while to revisit how he uses this citation. He says, and I'm citing Romans 12, 17 to 21 here, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Close quote. So the idea here is that as Christians, we ought to try and win over our enemies through acts of mercy and kindness. The burning coals represent pangs of conscience. When we do good to them, they will feel guilty for how they have treated us. And by means of these pangs, they may be brought to God. But even if they are not so affected, you will be blessed by the Lord. So you win either way. Hey, Pastor Paul, this feels like a good time to jump in because the advice that Solomon gives here seems to imply that believers need to be prepared to endure some unjust treatment in society. He seems to be saying that if we're patient and if we endure with a good attitude and if we return good deeds for bad, then over time we may be able to win over our enemies. Or maybe not. He leaves open the possibility that all we will be able to do is warrant the blessings of God. Right, but still, he seems to be assuming that life isn't always going to be easy for believers. We're going to have to put up with some persecution or at least harassment. I guess I would just want to put this teaching into context. Solomon isn't saying that we should just eat whatever injustices are done to us, right? He's not calling for outright pacifism here, is he? No, I don't think he's doing that. And of course, this is just one wise saying among many. So you wouldn't want to build your entire social theory out of this one passage. But neither do I think you have the option of ignoring this passage as you build your social theory. This passage is in the Bible, Old Testament and New. So obviously it needs to be factored in. Okay, fair enough. So what does it mean and what are the implications of whatever it means? Well, I think it's safe to say it means whatever the Apostle Paul says it means. It's always helpful to have an authorized, Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on an Old Testament passage. It kind of eliminates the guesswork. The Apostle Paul is using this passage to forbid revenge-taking on the part of Christians. So we're not to fight back with respect to personal grievances. So I'm not saying that Christians can't be police officers or can't serve in the armed forces. Of course they can. But a Christian can't punch someone who irritates them. We're not supposed to clap back at people on social media who take pot shots at us. 
to be a Christian is to absorb some abuse. Okay, I get it. But again, you're not saying that to a wife at home whose husband is abusive. No. In fact, that wife should call the police. If she calls her pastor, then her pastor should call the police. The king does not bear the sword in vain. You're quoting Romans again. Right. Uh, that's Romans 13, <laughs> 4. So just a few verses after Paul quotes Proverbs 25, 21 to 22, almost like he's anticipating your question, he says, but of course you can call the magistrate. So don't take your own revenge, but do call the magistrate because the magistrate has special authority from God to restrain the evildoer. But you are not to take matters into your own hands. Okay, so he is saying that God's people, believers, Old Testament and New, need to be prepared to absorb some mistreatment. We are not to fight back. We are not to seek our own revenge. We are to turn the other cheek. But at the same time, he is saying it is appropriate to call the police or complain to the judge if we are being subjected to abuse and mistreatment. Is that right? Yeah, remember, this, this whole section has to do with government and social conduct, and the two go hand in hand. The Bible is saying that it wants the government to address grievances, not individuals. Remember, the Bible grants lethal authority to the government back in Genesis 9 for the purpose of punishing murder. That was the original justification for state power. When a human being was murdered, rather than having a blood feud that goes on forever— God authorized societies to take collective action against the offender. That's the only way you're ever going to have peace. If everyone is out there righting their own wrongs, however they define what is right and wrong, then you're never going to have a functioning society. You have to trust the process. And believers need to take the lead on that. We need to lead the way in self-control, trust, and love for neighbors, and even love for enemies, as is being taught here in this passage, cited in both the Old and New Testaments. All right. Well, listen, I'm glad we'll be coming back to that over the next couple of episodes because that is a tall order given who we are as individuals and where we are as a society. Yeah, agreed. Let's jump back into the passage now at verse 23. The north wind brings forth rain and a backbiting tongue angry looks. This is a classic reap what you sow kind of proverb. Certain actions bring certain consequences. If you are a person given to sharp words, then be prepared to receive angry looks in return. We probably all know people who appear to live in constant conflict. They're always giving other drivers the finger and receiving the finger and the horn blast in return. Other people seem to make their way through life quite pleasantly, despite driving on the same roads and enduring similar conditions. Wisdom involves thinking about why that is. Verse 24. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. We've seen sayings like this before. Better a small house and a peaceful spouse than a mansion shared with a maniac. That's the basic idea. Verse 25. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. Yes, in verse 13, we talked about how a faithful messenger is a blessing to the one who sends him. But here we get the flip side of that. Good news is a blessing to those who receive it. Imagine wondering if your son survived the recent military campaign and having to wait three or four months to receive that news. 
Or imagine wondering if your daughter survived giving birth and having to wait three or four months to receive that news. We forget that instant information is a relatively new phenomenon. For most of human history, people waited anxiously for months on end for news and information about their loved ones. And in such a situation, we can all well imagine how good news from a far country would be like cold water to a thirsty soul. Verse 26. Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. A spring that has been muddied is useless, much like a righteous man who loses his position. He may still be a righteous man. He may have been ousted through intrigue and deceit, but no matter, he is no longer in a position to help anyone. The proverb is a reminder that character is essential, but position is necessary as well in order to exercise influence. Verse 27, it is not good to eat much honey nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. The first part of this proverb is difficult to translate, but the overall message is fairly straightforward. Glory is a fine thing in small quantities, but only if properly earned. If you seek it yourself, and if you seek it too much, it quickly sours. Verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. A lack of self-control makes you vulnerable. Now, the good news, if you're a Christian, is that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. A person who has been forgiven, redeemed, and restored by the person and work of Jesus Christ has also received the Holy Spirit and is therefore growing in each and every one of these characteristics. Paul said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Quote. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. So if we are in Christ, if we have the Spirit, we ought to be increasing in self-control. We ought to be managing ourselves a little better today than yesterday. We ought to be limiting our outbursts. We ought to be growing in peace. We ought to be forswearing revenge. We ought to be overcoming evil with good, winning over enemies and adversaries, and receiving the blessing of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time that we have for today, friends. As always, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.